You're listening to audio from Queen City Church. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message will encourage you and offer practical steps for a relationship with God that keeps getting better and better. Is anyone excited to be in the house this morning? Okay, so seven people believe that Jesus is alive and is still on the throne and woke you up this morning and put breath in your lungs this morning and saved you and redeemed you and changed you and is using you. I said, is anyone excited to be in the house? Okay, there we go. Come on. This morning, um, I am a black pastor, if you could not tell. And um, so that means this clock that they have in front of me, this 38 minutes and 48 seconds is going to be difficult for me. So we're going to jump straight in. Uh, If you're taking notes, and I hope you are because note takers are history makers, the title of today's message is this, Pick Up Your Shovel. Turn to your neighbor and say, Pick Up Your Shovel. Okay, some of y'all said that a little lazy. Turn to your other neighbor and say, Pick Up. Your shovel. Pick up your shovel. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we love you. And it is a gift to be able to gather and worship you today, to be able to do that freely, praying for our brothers and sisters around the globe who are worshiping you but are having to do it in secret and in silence because their lives are at risk. So let us not take for granted the opportunity that we have to gather together in a public school to lift up the name of Jesus, to sing praise to you, to magnify your name for who you are. God, we gather today hopeful and expectant that you will show up and you will move. No message or music can change a heart. Holy Spirit, only you could do that. So will you do now what only you could do? Would you take the words from your scripture and let them jump off the page into our hearts and would you transform us from the inside out? We need you, Jesus, and we invite you now. We pray these things in your name. And everyone said, amen. Men. Uh, I love getting to pastor our church in Roswell. The last year and a half has really been a joy for me. But I'll tell you, more than pastoring, uh, the greatest joy of my life is getting to pastor my home. Uh, I have a wife and four beautiful girls. uh, And being a dad, I had to bring a picture. So this is our family uh, right here. Those are my four girls right there. I have identical twin three-year-olds. They're on the outsides. That's Wesley and Zoe. Uh, And then in the middle, our two-year-old Trinity. She's the one with all the excitement. Uh, And then they're holding our six-week-old, the Lively. Uh, And I keep telling my wife, we shouldn't have named her Lively. We shouldn't have named her Serenity because she is living up to her name, and it is exhausting. Uh, But that's my family. We have a a family picture right there, and so so that's us. Uh, Y'all, I love my family. I love getting to be a dad. I love watching my girls grow up. I love watching them experience new things. I love taking them new places. I love watching them try new food. I love the little things that they say and the little things that they do as they're gaining their personality and figuring out the things that matter to them. Like, I love being a dad. Um, in 24 hours, I was like on an extreme high and an extreme low because of my girls. My three-year-olds have gotten their personality and, and they start saying things and sometimes they just say things without thinking, right? And so I'm in the playroom and I'm hanging out um, with the girls and we're playing around and our three-year-old Zoe, she walks up to me and she goes, Daddy, don't hug me. I don't love you. And walked away. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, what did I do to you, right? Um, but then, then within the same 24 hours, it's bedtime, which if you're a parent in the room, you know bedtime is like purgatory. And so, um, but we're at bedtime and I'm trying to get my, my girls down for bed. And my other three-year-old, Wesley, she walks up to me and she puts her hand on my chest. I was like, Wesley, what are you doing? And she goes, shh, daddy, shh. I feel Jesus. He's in your heart heart. And I was like, oh my gosh, take me now. You know, like it doesn't get any better than this, right? Like, so I love, love, love my girls and I love hanging out with them. But um, is it, can I be honest? Is this a place, is like safe place? Can I be honest? Okay. As much as I love my girls, there are moments that I want to drop kick them in the throat. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
I'm like, I love you if you touch me one more time. I'm like, get off me, right? Like, I will Sparta kick you into another universe. Stop touching me. Like, there are moments that they just drive me nuts. So three years of being a dad, almost 34 years old in life, I've been asking myself this question for three years. Like, why is it that the three-year-old that I brought into the world at 34 years old has the potential to get under my skin in such a way that it drives me up the wall? Why is it that I find myself negotiating in anger with the two-year-old that I chose to have? Why is it that in the middle of the night when I'm holding my six-week-old, mind you, that I was involved in the process of making, and I enjoyed that process, but now that they're here, (laughs) now that they're here, (laughs) you got to stop. Okay, stop. It's you. (laughs) Now that they're here, I'm going... Will you just let me sleep? I find myself being frustrated with the very thing that I prayed for. And I find myself in anger with the thing that I created. Why? And for three years, I've wrestled with that question. Like, why is it that I am the way that I am when it comes to my kids? And the more that I've wrestled with that question, here's what I've realized. The reason that I am that way is honestly because of one word. I'm selfish. I can be incredibly selfish. And oftentimes the reason that I'm frustrated with my kids has little to do with what they're doing or what they did. And it has everything to do with the fact that I want to do something or I had a plan or an agenda for the day. And this is going to sound crazy, but it's honest. And they're in the way. And I can be so selfish and so self-centered and so self-absorbed that I find myself angry at the very people that I prayed for. I remember a few years ago... um, my wife asked me what I wanted for my birthday. And it took me like 30 seconds to figure it out. I was like, here's what I want. I want to go into our guest room and I want to bring in a pint of Tonight Dough by Jimmy Fallon's. And I want to bring in my laptop and watch Netflix. And I'm going to lock the door. And I don't want to see any of y'all all day, <laughs> including you, right? Y'all, that dig was amazing. <laughs> awesome. But I was doing a wedding a couple of weeks ago and I pulled into the parking lot and as I was preparing for the wedding, the Lord just dropped this thought on me. He goes, you know there's no marriage in heaven. I was like, yeah, I know. And you know there's no parenting in heaven and there's no ministry in heaven. It's not necessary. I'm like, yeah, I, I know. And he goes, so that means you only have one shot at all of those things now. And you think about that compared to the reality that I took 24 hours away from my wife and kids that I will never get back because I just wanted to be selfish. Now hear me, I'm I'm not saying that there's something wrong with self-care and I'm not saying that you shouldn't take a break every now and then and like I'm an introvert, I don't wanna talk to anyone. So like I get it, I understand. But I'm just saying there's something about us that naturally is bent towards our own desires, our own wants, our own needs. That I want to do what I want to do. I want to watch what I want to watch. I want to eat what I want to eat. I want to go where I want to go. I want to live my life by my schedule, by my agenda, by my dreams, by my hopes, 
by my plans, and I don't want anyone else to get in the way. And if we could just be honest for a minute in the room, so do you. That all of us have this natural bent towards selfishness, that you want to watch what you want to watch and eat what you want to eat and wear what you want to wear and go where you want to go and have plans and dreams and desires and hopes, and you don't like to be inconvenienced and bothered by other people either. That all of us are a little bit selfish, and who can blame you? Like, we live in a culture that leads us in this direction. We live in a culture that says things like, you do you, boo-boo. Right? Do what makes you happy. Or this is the phrase that drives me up the wall. Live your truth. Just side note for a second. That is the dumbest phrase in all of history. It doesn't make any sense. You know why it doesn't make any sense? Because what happens when your truth contradicts with my truth? Whose truth gets to be the truth? There is only one truth, it is the word of God, and we ought to align ourselves to the truth. But our culture says, no, 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 no. You just live for yourself. You do whatever's gonna make you happy. You live according to your rules and your truth and your agenda and your hopes and your dreams, and don't worry about anyone else. Just live for you. I'm a visual learner because I'm just like really simple, and so just, I know this is, Childish, but just go with me for a second. It's like all of us live with one of these, you know. And don't worry, I didn't steal this from Kroger. Um, I actually ordered it off of Amazon, which is ironic, preaching a sermon on consumerism. And yeah, all right, so <laughs> stop, don't judge me. You have a Prime account too. Okay, some of y'all went ham on Prime Day and you didn't even need what you bought, so leave me alone. <laughs> Deal with your own conviction, okay? Um, but all of us walk through life with one of these. And in every circumstance, every environment, every relationship, every opportunity, we carry in our basket. And so we go into our friendships and we go, Pastor Brian, serve me. Make me feel important. Make me feel seen today. Make me feel significant. And if you can't do that as a friend, then we can't be friends anymore. I'll go find a friend who will make me feel good and make me feel seen. You walk into your company and you're like, make me feel valuable. Give me the, pro, the promotion so I feel significant and I feel seen. And if you can't do that, then I'm going to leave. Now, I'm not here to judge you or throw shame on you. I'm just going to be honest for a second. This is the reason that for many of you, you can't keep a job for more than a year. Because you're walking into the company and you're going, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. You do this in your relationships. You're like husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. Make me feel beautiful. Make me feel valuable. Make me feel wanted. Make me feel significant. Give me, give me, give me, give me. You even walk into your church and you're like, come on. You better play the song that I want to hear this week. It better be Pastor Brian and not that whack dude from Atlanta again. You better give me somebody that I want to hear. Are we going to finish on time this week? Probably not. (laughs) And we walk through life consuming and consuming and consuming, that the question that marks our, our generation and our moment in time is this question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And if it doesn't give to me, if it doesn't add value to me, if it doesn't serve me, then it's not for me. It is a consumeristic way of living, y'all. And can I just tell you on the front end, it doesn't work. That there are a few problems with this way of living. The first problem is this. The nature of consumption is that when you consume, eventually it will what? Run out. That when you take and you take and you take and you take, eventually the thing that you're taking from runs out. 
And so for some of you, you're running out of friends and you're going, I don't know why I don't have any friends anymore. I don't know why anyone, no one's picking up the phone. I don't know why I'm alone on a Friday night. And maybe can I just submit to you that it's because you've consumed from every relationship and there's nothing left to take. For some of you, you're running out of opportunities in your career and it's because you've consumed, you've consumed, you've consumed. For some of you, your family won't pick up or hang out with you anymore. And it's because eventually when you consume for long enough, the source will run out and they will have nothing left to give. This level of living does not work because it will run out. That's part one. Part two is this, is when you live like this, it damages people. You know how I know that? You know how you know that? because you've been on the other side of this. And you know what it's like when you see their phone pop up, their name pop up on your phone, and you're like, what do they want this time? And you know what it's like to have called them and needed something, and they're always busy. They always have something going on. You're moving, you're in a hard situation, you had a hard day, and you pick up the phone to call them about your life, and all they do is talk about themselves. You know what it's like to be on the other side of this, to feel used and taken advantage of and abused. You know what it's like to to have someone only take from you and you know how badly that's hurt you. And as much as we know that, we still have a tendency to do it to other people. And so this type of living, not only does it not last, it damages other people, but honestly, the, the most important reason why this type of living doesn't work is this. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, this is so important for you to understand. That type of living is explicitly not Christian. That you cannot be a follower of Jesus and live like that. It's not an option for you. And if you have chosen to buy into this self-centered, self-absorbed, consumeristic way of living, can I just submit to you that you have bought into the lie that the enemy has been telling since the very beginning of time. Go back to the garden. God creates everything, creates man and woman, puts his breath in them, gives them the ability to go anywhere, to do anything, to eat from any tree, except for one, they get to name all the animals. Adam's walking around the garden like, beautiful, butterfly, ugly, hippo, you suck, you know? Everything has been given to them. And when you go back and read, and I would suggest you do it, you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, and you see that the whole story is about who? God. It's about his creation, his goodness, his kindness, his love for humanity, his presence with his people. The story is about God. And then Genesis 3 comes, and the enemy creeps into the story, and he looks at Eve, and he goes, did God say that you couldn't eat from any of the trees? No, 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 that's not what he said. He said, we can't eat from this one tree, and if we touch it, well, well, you're not going to die. God just knows that if you eat from the tree, that you will be like God. And something happens in Genesis chapter 3 where the enemy gives Eve this lie that God is withholding something from her. But if you pay close attention, the shift that's happened is the story that was about God has now become about Eve. Now it's about me. And what I'm not getting and how I'm not being served. And the story of creation is God gave everything to humanity. But the lie that Eve believed is that she wasn't getting enough. And it turned inward on herself. It went from looking upward and outward to inward on her. And it became this self-centered, self-absorbed, selfish life. Her and Adam. Man, you are not absolved. Honestly, we're the problem, right? It's all of us. And so the lie that the enemy has told from the very beginning is that it's about you, not about him. 
And living like that will kill you and the people around you. This is why Jesus calls us to models and says he will judge us by a different way of living. And so if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in three um, sections of scripture today. Matthew chapter 20, Philippians chapter 2, and then back in Matthew 25. And what we're going to see together today is the life that Jesus calls us to, the life that he models for us, and the life that he will ultimately judge us by. And in seeing this, my hope and my prayer is that it might just change the way that we live, that we would not give in to the rhythms and the flow of culture. Because if we do, Christian in the room, hear me. If you do, you will find yourself successful with the house and the car and the family and the career, and you will dishonor God in the process. So Matthew chapter 20, 20 through 28, it says this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked him for a favor. Sons of Zebedee are James and John, brothers of thunder. Their mom comes to Jesus, asked for a favor. What is it that you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink? Now, when he said this, he wasn't talking about drinking from a literal cup. He's talking metaphorically about his death, the sacrifice that he was about to make for all of humanity. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. You are going to suffer for your faith for sure. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the high officials exercise authority over them. Verse 26, he says, not so with you. If you're circling or underlining anything, you should underline that. Not so with you. Instead, he says, whoever wants to be great, you should circle, put an exclamation mark, highlight that. Because here's what you need to know. God is not opposed to your greatness. You want to feel significant? You want to feel important? You want to leave a legacy behind? You want to do something great in the world? God's not opposed to you being great. He just wants you to get there the right way. He's going, culture is not going to lead you to the right way of pursuing greatness. So let me show you how to get there. If anyone wants to become great among you, they must be your, what's the word right there? Servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So James and John pulled this move that I used to pull in middle school. Anyone remember the awkward middle school years? Those were terrible for me, you know. Um, but in middle school, when I wanted my friends to spend the night, I knew that if I asked my mom, like, she would easily say no to me, right? Like, if, if I asked for anything, the answer was always no. So I was like, okay, I cannot ask her. But what I could do is I could get my friend to ask her because it's harder to say no to my friend than it is to me, right? So what James and John are doing. They're going, Jesus, we want to be important. We want to be significant. We want to be valuable in your kingdom, but we don't have the audacity to ask you that. Like, who, do, who would we think we are? So we're not going to do that. You know what we're going to do? We're going to get our mom to do it. Because you ain't saying no to mama, right? And so mama comes up on the scene and goes, hey, Jesus, can you do me a favor? And he's like, right, yeah, what do, you, what do you need? What's up? Like, what do you want? She goes, well, you make my sons your right and your left. And he goes, you don't even know what you're asking for. You have no idea the responsibility that comes with the authority that you're asking for. You have no idea. And he kind of deads the conversation, except for the conversation doesn't die because the other 10 either hear about the conversation or they were within earshot and heard it themselves. And they get incredibly frustrated. Like, really, bro? 
You have the audacity, the audacity to ask God, Jesus to be at the right and left hand in his kingdom. And not only did you do that, bro, you got your mama to ask him, really? So that's what we're doing now. We're getting our mama involved, right? Really, bro? And the argument begins. And in that, Jesus steps in and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Y'all, y'all don't understand. You have it twisted. He goes, you know how the Gentiles work, right? And if you're reading your Bible and you see the word Gentile, you can translate that to the culture. Because when Jesus says Gentile, there were the Jewish people who were God's chosen people, and then there were the Gentiles who were people who were not walking the way of God. And so he goes, you know how the culture or, or people who don't follow God live, right? He goes, they climb their way to the top of the ladder, and then when they get to the top, they exercise their authority over the people. Jesus is going, the way that the culture works is you work hard enough to get to the top so that you can be in a position to ask everyone else to give to you. You work hard enough to get to a place where you go, okay, now that I've put in the work, give me, serve me, submit to me. He goes, that's the way that the world works, but not us. He goes, if you're going to be my follower, that's not the way that we work. We don't just take from other people. We don't consume from other people. He goes, no, 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 no. In my kingdom, if you want to be great, it's not about getting up there. It's about coming down here. He goes, my kingdom is not about getting. It's actually about giving. He goes, my kingdom isn't climbing the ladder. He goes, my kingdom is becoming the ladder that other people climb. He goes, my kingdom isn't about you. My kingdom is about the world around you. He goes, get this. My kingdom is not about status. It's about service. And the world will tell you to pursue status at any cost, and it will leave you empty. But Jesus goes, if you will humble yourself and serve, this is where you find purpose. This is the road to significance. There's a lot of young professionals, young adults in the room, and you want to be significant. You want to be uh, matter in the world. You want to leave a legacy in the world. And so you're trying to climb a corporate ladder and you're going place after place after place looking for this significance, looking for people to see you and to know you and love you and appreciate you. And Jesus goes, you want to know how you find it? Serve. He goes, give your life away. Jesus is essentially saying this. He's going, put this down. And this is so silly, I get it. But he's going, pick this up. He goes, this is what life with me looks like. Because you want to know what it looks like to be my follower. It's walking into your friendships and it's going, hey man, how can I serve you? How can I serve your family? What do you need right now? How, how, how can I pray for you in this season? We know what being a follower of Jesus looks like. He goes, it looks like going into your company and not going, hey, give me a promotion or I'm going somewhere else. It's, it's showing up to your company and it's going, hey, I cannot imagine what the last three or four years had to have been like for you. Trying to carry this company through COVID and now everyone has all these demands. Some people want to work from home. Some people want to be in the office and you're trying to keep the lights on and keep the books going. And you may have even taken a pay cut in order for us to still be here. Is there any way that I could serve you? Can I pray for you? How's your family doing? He goes, being a follower of Jesus is not showing up to your spouse and going, serve me, make me feel good, meet my demands, meet my needs. It's showing up to your spouse and it's dying to self to serve them. It's mutual submission. 
Giving everything for the other person. Imagine if you both decided to do that for each other. He goes, if you want to be my follower, it's not showing up to church, going play the right song and have the right lights and finish at the right time and have the right preacher and give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. He's going, no, 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 no. You know what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in the church? It's going, I have been uniquely wired by God and I have skill sets and abilities that other people in the room don't have. And so I might be busy and have other things going on, but it is my responsibility and obligation to see the movement of Jesus go forward. So I'm showing up to the church going, here's what I have to offer. Here's how I can serve. Here's what I want to give. I have the gift of giving. We got some money that we want to give away. I have the gift of service. We can show up and hold a door. I love kids. I'll show up and hang out with other people's kids so that they can have some time to connect with God after a long and busy week. I'm going to show up and bring my gifts to the table. And Jesus goes, that's what it looks like to be my follower. He goes, you want to live like the world? Sure. Go live for yourself and see how far that gets you. But if you want significance and purpose and value and greatness in this life, you put down the shopping basket and you pick up the shovel. Now, here's what I love about Jesus. He calls us to this way of living. But what I love about Jesus is he's never called you to anything that he wouldn't do first. Verse 28, just as the son of man did not come to what be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He goes, the reason I can ask you to do this for each other is because I did it for you. The Apostle Paul actually digs into that statement from Jesus in more detail in Philippians chapter two. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture. It says this, Philippians chapter two, verses three through eight. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Now, um, I spent a few hours doing a word study uh, on the original language here, and that word nothing in the Greek, it's gonna blow your mind what it actually means. In the Greek, that word nothing means, get this, nothing. Nothing. No thing, meaning if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, it is never okay to walk into an environment or a relationship going, what's in it for me? Because you never live like that. He says, you do absolutely nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather, he says, and humility. What's humility? He says this, it's value others above Yourself, you've heard the quote that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. He says, don't do anything going what's in it for me, but rather in every relationship, think about yourself less. Don't look to your own interests, but each of you look to the interests of the others. He goes, in every relationship, put down the shopping basket and pick up the shovel. He is echoing the sentiments of Jesus, but he doesn't end there. What he gives us next is the reason why, verse five. And your relationships with one another have the same, what's the word that's right there? Mindset. You want to circle that, highlight that, write that down. That's going to be huge for us later. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Now to understand what Paul is saying here, there's a part of the scripture that, that we need to elevate and pull out of the text. It's verse six. He says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Equality with God. As followers of Jesus, we have this belief in a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Essentially what we believe is that Jesus is not some prophet or some teacher, but that he is literally God in human flesh. He's God in a bod. So if we believe that Jesus is God, 
then that means what he says has authority. What he models, we ought to follow. With the wrong perspective of who Jesus is will dictate the way that you live and the way that you follow him. So we have to have right perspective of Jesus. When we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about God, which makes what Paul says next astounding. That the one who made all things for him and through him, that the one who sits at the right hand of God, that the one who will judge the living and the dead, the one who defeated sin, hell, and the grave once and for all, put on human skin, stepped down to the pages of history, died the death that you deserve after living the life that you could not live in order that you might have relationship with you in order to serve you. That the God of the universe died to serve you gave his life away for you, was beaten within inches of his life for you, was spit on for you, was mocked for you, had nails driven through his hands and his feet for you, suffered and, and, and suffocated on a cross for you and for me. Paul's going, and if he could do that for you, then what's your excuse? If the only one who had the right to live with one of these picked up one of these, then what's our excuse? If the God of the universe could serve, then what's keeping us from giving our life away in the way that he did? Y'all, this ought to blow your mind. When you think about how broken you are, how messed up you are, how many mistakes you made, how many times you said you weren't gonna do that again and you did it again, how many times you lied, how many times you've stolen, how many times you made promises to God and then you broke them. I won't speak for you, I'll just speak for me. How many times I said, God, it's gonna be different this time and it wasn't different that time? How many times I stood on a stage and preached a message and then had a hard time living that message? How many times I treated my kids the way that they didn't deserve, treated my wife the way that she didn't deserve? And in the middle of all of that, God said, I love you enough that I would die for you, for me. I don't, I don't deserve that. I'm not worthy of that. No, 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 you're, you're not supposed to do that for me. And y'all, when you get that, the only appropriate response is to do what he called you to. It's to follow his example. It's to live like him. And so Jesus calls us to a different way of living, but not only does he call us to it, he models it for us. But it doesn't end there. Because not only does he call us to it and model it for us, he actually says that this is the standard by which he will judge humanity. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 40. It says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Like, just imagine this moment for a second. Jesus dies, resurrected, ascends to heaven, comes back with all power, might, and glory. He sits on a throne. Everyone's in awe and bewilderment and amazement. And Jesus just starts going, you, you, you. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, 
take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothing and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus goes, hey, at some point I'm going to come back to restore the world once and for all. And when I do, I'm going to hold you accountable for your life. Some are going to go to the right, some are going to go to the left. But the ones on the right, I'm going to go, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. You cared for the sick, you cared for the needy, you cared for the hungry, you saw the homeless person that everyone else walked by and you stopped and talked to them. You signed up for the serve day over and over again. You gave your life away to me. And he goes, and those people will go, Jesus, we didn't, when did we do that for you? You were in heaven. And he goes, oh, the, the least of these. When you love them, you love me. When you love them, you love like me. The inheritance belongs to you. You belong with me. Now, I want to be super clear with what I'm saying here because this could be easily confused. Jesus is not saying that your service will save you. It can't. You can't be good enough to earn your way to God. And the second you think you can, you're in trouble. Your service doesn't save you, but what Jesus is saying here is that your service is evidence that you've been saved. Because when you, when you get what I've done for you, you live like me. And he goes, because you belong to me now, you'll get to belong with me forever. So come home. Come home. My good and faithful servant. Friends, hear me. Jesus has called you to a different way of living. He's modeled it for you. He's set the example. And he's warning us, when I get back, this is how I'm going to judge you. Y'all, this is why your serve day is so important. It's not your church just going, hey, let's you know, take a Sunday off and go serve. I don't feel like preaching this week. It's not what's happening. It's a church understanding this is the call of the Christian. This is the way we're supposed to live. This is who we are. And if we don't get this right, we misrepresent Jesus in the world. And so we have to get this right. We have to be people who put down the shopping basket and pick up the shovel. But how? But what does that look like practically for you and for me? Does that mean like, all right, Gerald, I heard the sermon. I'm going to go sign up for a mission trip and go to Uganda next week. Does that mean, like, all right, I'm going to go home and I'm selling all my sneakers, Mike. All my sneakers got to go. I'm giving all the money away to the poor. Does that mean I'm going to sign up for every serve day and never miss another one until I die? Maybe. Like, maybe that's what God's calling you to. Like, yes, those are all good things. But also, no. You see, the tendency for us is to check a box, to find another moment to do good work. And I just need you to hear me. Jesus is calling you to far more than a moment. Jesus isn't calling you to moments of service. He's calling you to the mindset of a servant. 
He's not calling you to check a box. He's calling you to live like him. He's not calling you to go on a mission trip. He's calling you to see your life as a mission. He's going to so much more than a moment. This is a mindset that my followers must carry. And the way that we carry that mindset requires a shift in our identity. You see, the way we move from shopping basket to shovel is not effort, it's identity. It's not trying harder. It's having a deeper and richer understanding of who you are in Jesus. Because when you understand who you are, then you will know what to do. When you understand who you are, then you will know how to live like him. When you understand what God has done in you, you will walk with your chest out and your head high and go, I have something to offer to the world because God has done something in me. Dr. Tony Evans, speaking on Philippians chapter two, writes this. He says, so how can we adopt Christ's mindset? Well, Jesus could serve because he knew he was God. Service was never a threat to him because he never lost sight of who he was. He was never insecure in his identity. He knew his position with the Father. So similarly, when you know who you are, a saint and a son and daughter of God, rendering service won't be a problem. It's when you don't know who you are that serving becomes a problem. When you are unsure of your identity, you'll fear that serving is beneath you and that you will somehow be taken advantage of if you serve. That the key to service and living the life that Jesus has called you to is understanding your identity in him. As a follower of Jesus in the room, can I just tell you the identity that you now live in? Non-Christian in the room, can I tell you the identity that Jesus is offering you today? It's this. That in Jesus you are born again. You are a saint. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a disciple. You are protected by the power of his name. You are set free by the truth. You are eternally secure in Christ. You are kept from the evil one. You are one with God the Father and with Jesus the Son. You are God's gift to Christ. You have peace with God. You have been justified by faith. You have access into the sphere of God's grace. You can rejoice even in times of trouble. The love of God has been poured into your heart. You are reigning in the life of Jesus Christ. You have been reconciled to God. You have been raised to walk in the newness of life. You have been united with Christ through his death and his resurrection. The old self has been crucified with Christ. You are no longer the, under the law, but under grace. You have eternal life in Christ Jesus. You are freed from the power of sin. You are free from condemnation. You are a servant of God. You are led by the spirit of God. You are joint heirs with Christ. You can be confident that all things, I mean all things will work together for your good. You are being conformed into the image of God. You have been given all things. You are inseparable from the love of God. You are more than a conqueror in Jesus. You are God's temple. You are washed, sanctified, and justified by the blood of Christ. You have been bought with a purchase. You are triumphant in Christ. You are an ambassador of Christ. You are strong even when you are weak. You are redeemed. You are filled with the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You are blessed with everything every spiritual blessing. You are a new creation in Christ. Let me say that again. You are a new creation in Christ. You are chosen by God to be holy and blameless. You are accepted. You have redemption through his blood. You are forgiven of your sins. You are called according to his purpose. You are made alive in Christ. You are saved by grace through faith. You are his handiwork, which he prepared good works for you to do in advance. You have access to Jesus through the Father. You are 
able to walk boldly into Christ's presence. You have been renewed in the spirit of your mind. The old man has been put off. You were once in the darkness, but now you are in the light. He who started a good work in you is going to finish it. You are a citizen of heaven. You can rejoice in the Lord always. You are a child of God. That's who you are. That's your identity. Oh, when you understand that identity, you wake up every morning and you go, oh, God's done a work in me. I got something to offer. Oh, God's done a work in me. So friend, I can show up for you even on my worst day. Oh, God's done a work in me, so I'm going to show up and be the best at the company. Whether you see me or not, I know God sees me. Oh, God's done a work in me, so I'm going to show up in this marriage and in this relationship. And whether you love me the way that I deserve to be loved, I'm going to love you the way that Jesus has loved me. Oh, God's done a work in me, so I'm going to show up in the church and I'm going to give everything away. And the gates of hell will not stand against God's church in Cincinnati, not on my watch. We're showing up and we're taking over and things are going to change. God's done a work in me, and so there's a work to be done. The shovel has been picked up. It's time to go. It's time to go. When you understand your identity in Christ, when you understand who you are, then you'll do what he's called you to do. You'll live life on mission. So let's take a moment to respond to that reality today. For a moment, every head bowed in the room, every eye closed, The reality of the calling that God has placed on your life is that you cannot do it apart from him. You need him to do it. And for some of you, you heard me read through that list and you're like, yeah, yeah, all of that sounds amazing, but I don't know if that's true of me. I don't know if that's my identity. And can I just say to you, if you're in the room and you're a follower of Jesus, that is true of you whether you feel it or not. If you're in the room and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that can be true of you today that God wants to give you a new identity, a new calling, a new purpose in life, and he wants to do that right now. The scripture says this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark, we all fail. That the wages of our sin is death, eternal separation from God, a lack of identity and purpose, a lack of relationship with him. But Romans 5, 8 says this, that while you were still a sinner, not when you got it together, not when you had it figured out, not when you had perfect church attendance, if you showed up for the first time today, this is true for you, that Christ died for your sin. And that in him, new life is available. New identities are given. New purpose is found. The scripture says this, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and you confess that with your mouth, confession that Jesus died for your sin, and eternal life is found in him, then you will be saved with him forever. And new identity is given to you at that moment. So right now, is there anyone in the room that you would say, yeah, I want in on the calling that God has for my life. I don't want to live for me anymore. I want to live for God. Today's the day I want to say yes to Jesus. If that's you, no one's looking around. This is just for you. But would you just raise your hand real quick so we can see where you are. Anyone in the room? Yeah, that's awesome. See one. Is there anyone else? Raise them high so I can see you. Come on, that's awesome. All across the room, their hands up. Keep your hand up. It's a moment of faith. God meets you here. In a moment, we're going to say a prayer together. I need you to know this: the words. There's nothing magical about the words. The words don't save you. It's just a way to verbalize what just took place in your heart. The Scripture says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, so you've done the belief in your heart part. 
we're not just gonna confess with our mouth. So I'm gonna say a prayer you can repeat after me. You can say, today, Jesus, I choose you. I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I've fallen short of your standard, but I see you today as my savior. I choose your way of living. I choose your identity. I choose your life. So will you forgive me of my sin? Will you save my soul? Will you teach me from your word? Or will you lead me by your spirit? We ask this now in Jesus' name. If there's anything in your life that we can pray for, please visit queencitypeople.com slash prayer. For the latest updates on our church, follow us on social media at Queen City People or visit queencitypeople.com.